As we pray, I want to read to us first from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good, good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on his righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Join with me as we pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, unite our hearts and unite our minds. May we live what is true in this passage. May it be true of your assembled body in this place this morning. That we would have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, and humble minds. We come to you, Father, gathered together, recognizing that in this life that is full of trial, tribulation, sin, and temptation, disease, death, and much pain, we assemble because we need you, Father, first of all. But we assemble together because you have given us each other. And as we assemble in your presence, we assemble with each other. Seeking to have unity amongst ourselves, seeking to live according to your purpose and plan each and every day, seeking to stir one another up to love and good deeds, seeking to bear one another's burdens, seeking to love one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. God, you say your eyes are on the righteous and your ears are open to their prayers. So God, we come before you asking for your open ears, not on the basis of our own righteousness. Because if we came to you in prayer, asking you to open your ears to us on the basis of our achievement, obedience, righteousness, you would not hear our prayers. But Father, in your love, you saw fit to send your Son while we were still sinners, still dead in our unrighteousness. And you raised us up to newness of life through the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son. And so, God, on the basis of Jesus' righteousness, we come before you in prayer, and we know that your ears are open to those who stand in Jesus' righteousness. We pray for our body, our church, as there are many needs. There are those that grieve. There are those that are in physical pain and emotional pain and spiritual pain. There are those that are hurting. 
Father, there are those that are questioning their belief in you, their relationship with you. There are those that wonder today if you are good as you say that you are. There are those that have no answers for the problems they face in their life. Father, I pray that by your spirit now, you would uplift every single one of us. That you would pour out your spirit on us, fill us, fill us with a a new sense of the warmth of the fire of the spirit in our lives to restore us in our brokenness, in our disobedience, in our deadness because of our own sin. God, I pray specifically for an unredeemed heart in the room this morning. Because, Father, we know there are some. We know that anytime we gather, we believe that the majority of those who gather here together as a church have been redeemed and saved by you. But, Father, I pray specifically for those that are searching this morning, those that are questioning this morning. I pray that as we continue in worship today, as your word is unfolded, that, Father, you would speak the truth of the gospel through your spirit into hearts and minds and that a dead heart would be made alive today, Father. I pray specifically that you would do it this morning. And every one of us that has grown a little bit cold in our hearts because of the trials and tribulations of this life, Father, bring, bring fresh life. Bring fresh spirit-induced energy to live in obedience and to represent you. As Father, we have heavy words from your word this morning. Words that will be of great comfort to many and of great challenge to others. Words that, that instill in us an incredible responsibility to be your church, your household. To stand up for the truth, to hold up the truth to a watching world. God, you have given us a high calling. And in your word this morning, we'll see that and unpack it. Prepare us, Father, for the word that is preached. God, I pray that you would comfort the afflicted, that you would bring to new life the spiritually dead, and that, Father, you would give all of us a new energy and a new zeal to serve you and to follow you well. It's in the name of the risen Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray together. Amen. It's such a joy to have the opportunity to gather in worship. Thank you for joining us, um, those of you in person here and, and watching online. Um, I'm going to have the kids go ahead and be dismissed to their time of worship. Um, that's upstairs. Um, if you've already checked them in, you can just send them. Otherwise, you can go out there with them to help them check in. We've got one announcement that I'm not going to make, and I'm going to ask um, Jim Dashler to join me briefly on stage to talk to us about an important initiative that... Um, that he's leading. So Jim, you're out there somewhere, I believe. Yeah, you're on your way. Um, as, you're, um, as Jim is making his way up there, I'll remind you that um, many of our upcoming announcements and events are on this half-sheet bulletin. So pay attention to that, and there's a few things on there I'll draw attention to in a minute. But here is Jim Dashler. Good morning. Thank you, Tim. <coughs> um, just want to take a few minutes of your time. And do it a little bit more. There you go. All right. Hear me? <laughs> See me? 
Uh, somewhere around Thanksgiving, a couple members from the church here approached me and wanted to know when we were going to have, when I was going to have the next art driver safety program. And I said, well, I don't know. I said, but the next one we have needs to be here at the church. It's been seven years since we had a class here at the church. But two of those years, we didn't have any throughout the whole country because of the COVID. In 2020 and 21, we were shut down altogether. So what's the ARP driver safety program? Basically, it was set up originally for people 50 years and older. We talk a lot about statistics, driving habits of aging. Unfortunately, we have so many distracted accidents in the state of Georgia, they lowered the, the age to 25. Yeah. The problem is, apparently they didn't think about the textbooks too much because if you're, well, if you're a 25-year-old, I don't imagine you take too many prescriptions. You know, you don't have any eye issues, do you? You don't have any hearing issues, and that's what the material is like. But if you want to attend the class, the initiative is in the state of Georgia, if you take this class, it's a six-hour class, textbook and DVD stuff, no test. Nobody's going to grade your papers. You get a certificate that's good for three years. And anybody that sells auto insurance in the state of Georgia is obligated to give the holder of that certificate 10% off their auto insurance. So that's the incentive for you folks to take it. I don't get anything out of this. This is strictly uh, volunteer on my part. All the money goes to ARP, and the class will cost you $25 if you're not an ARP member. If you are, it's $20. Um, any questions? Hopefully I've covered it all. So I have a question. So you're telling me that I would qualify for an AARP driving class right now? You got it. Wow, okay. Yeah. You own any prescriptions? Um, no, no, but I may not be the safest driver if you ask my wife. So just, I think I'm a great driver, but. Um, For your information, seniors, the biggest accident problem with seniors occurs at four-way intersections. 75% of all the accidents seniors are involved in occur at four-way stops or intersections. And they usually end up getting ticketed for failing to yield the right-of-way. Yeah. Either pull out too soon, mm -hmm. putt, 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 get out there and forget to putt, putt, step on the gas. <laughs> so, we've heard it all. That's right. Thank you, Jim. Um, there's a sign-up sheet in the ba on the back table there if you want to sign up for Jim's class there. And I believe, Jim, a, a date hasn't been set yet, correct? Oh, it is? The 31st. The 31st. Yes, January 31st, there is a class that is set, and he'll have some information on that table and a sign-up sheet on that table there for you. A um, few other things in the life of the church. Um, we are going to, uh, you are all invited to a, a wedding anniversary reception behind me immediately after the service, celebrating the 70th wedding anniversary of Jim and Florence Wells. 
Um, so please make your way back there if you have a few minutes to stay. And um, unfortunately, Jim is unable to join us today. He woke up not feeling well. Florence will be with us. That's why we have these beautiful flowers provided by Gene Dantzler. There's even more beautiful flowers back there. Um, there's some food, refreshments, things like that. People are bringing cards. Um, so we'd love for you to stay around and uh, celebrate that amazing uh, demonstration of personal faithfulness and the faithfulness of God in their marriage and family. Um, there are a few things um, on there. The ladies' event, January 21st, there's a, a, a soup lunch. There's a sign-up sheet on that back table for that. And then a few things uh, farther in the future, upcoming. The congregational meal and meeting is February 19th. And then the missions conference, the weekend of the 25th and 26th. There will be Saturday and Sunday components um, to that. So uh, thank you for paying attention, um, making note of those things. Oh, and last thing I'll say is uh, we've kind of been... Uh, have had some things on hold over the Christmas break and New Year's and everything. Um, Sunday evening, kids ministry and youth are back to normal this evening. So if that applies to anyone in your household, that's normal time this evening, starting at 5:30 um, here. Um, youth, that building, um, the kids um, start over here. Um, but then also, there's lots of life groups that are meeting tonight um, or meeting at other points, and so it's always a good time to ask for some information for that. You have Ramona's email address here. Just start there. Just Ramona at fellowshipdalton.com. We'll send you some information on um, life groups. Uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, in the fall, we started working our way through the book of 1 Timothy. And we only got about halfway through, not even halfway through, when we took a break to look at the book of Isaiah for the, the month of December and then last week, the first Sunday in January. So we actually stopped partway through chapter 3. And now, this week, we'll go back to chapter 3. Here's the heaviness of our topic for this morning. The church is a beautiful thing. It's a creation by God. The, the church is called throughout Scripture God's, the, the bride of Jesus, Jesus' wife. It's called the body of Jesus, with Jesus as the head and the rest of us as the church filling out Jesus' body. In this passage, it's called the household of God, which actually means the family of God. There's some beautiful illustrations for church throughout the New Testament, and here is a central passage in which the beauty and the importance of the church is very clearly defined and affirmed to us. And yet many of us struggle to engage in a church as family. I'll tell you a story about my life. Probably the largest season, the, the most significant season in my life in terms of my call to ministry and what I felt God was going to do with me for the rest of my life, uh, began in the fall of 2003, and it was actually my... Um, senior year of high school. Big, big year for most people, figuring out where you're going to go to college. Career is an important question as you decide where you're going to college, what college programs you're going to pursue. And that fall of 2003 was an essential year for me. But what happened in earlier in 2003, my parents came to me and they said, we're moving. I said, that sounds terrible. I'm going into my senior year of high school. I don't want to move. 
They said, that's okay, we have a plan. You're staying. We're moving, you're staying. And so my parents moved from Jackson, Tennessee to Cincinnati, Ohio. I was 18 years old, going into my senior year of high school, and uh, I remained in Tennessee. They moved to Ohio. Um, It was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't like they were sick of me. They kicked me out of their house, and they moved six hours away. It was actually what they recognized was the right thing for everybody in the family. I had an older brother that was a senior in college in Tennessee, and he and I stayed together that year. I had a younger sister that was um, a year and a half younger than me in high school. She moved to Cincinnati. So we had, we split as a family. My brother and I stayed in Tennessee. My younger sister and my parents moved to Ohio. It was the exactly right thing for every single one of us because it was that year that I fell in love with the church. It was that year that changed everything in my life. I went from being a believer that knew the church was important, that was committed to it, volunteering in it in high school, and serious about my faith, but not really serious about the church or about what the church could be. But that year, there were a few families that really just came around my brother and I. Me specifically. He was a senior in college. Nobody cared as much about him. But being a senior in high school, everybody was like, oh, poor Tim. He doesn't have parents anymore. And I was like, yes, I love free food. Feel sorry for me. All you want. And so they, they fed us. They cared for us. They opened their homes to us. I spent more time in the homes of other church members that year than I had in years before that. And it became a family. And it became the reason that within four or five months of that happening, I started to think, there is a beauty here. And there's a, there's a possibility here. That the church is possible of more than what I've seen so far. Because if I can have this deeply emotional, filling experience from people in this body, then, then others can have that too. And other people that are hurting, other people that are transitioning, other people that are struggling can find a family and can, can find a hope in this place too. And so, my dream from that point on was, I'm going to stay here, I'm going to serve here, this is where I'm supposed to be. Within a few years, I, I, I stayed in college, the same town, went to the same church all through college, met Jess, she started coming to that church with me, we got engaged, and um, we actually pursued an opportunity to serve at that church, did for a little while part-time, and then nothing else came about. We moved to South Carolina, and then we eventually moved here. God called me here. God called us here. And within a year and a half of being in Georgia, five years after God had called me to ministry through this beautiful local church that was so strong and functioning so well, five years later, the church was gone. And there's another part of the story. Three years after that incredible experience for me, we went through a transition in which people I deeply cared about just started going separate ways. Probably the, the, the three families that were most instrumental to my calling that year and that church feeling like such a powerful and strong family. There was so much beauty there, and there were three instrumental families to that, and within three years, all three were in different places. And within five years, the church was, was gone altogether. And right there, that story probably feels real to a lot of you. 
Because any of you that have engaged in the church of Jesus Christ over a period of time have seen both great beauty, tremendous beauty, and also deep, deep hurt and woundedness. It is the contrasting nature of what happens within the local church. And so when we come in to a passage that tells us the church is important, the church is essential, and the church is a family, I recognize that that's going to be heard in very different ways in this setting this morning. Some of you are going to hear the church is beautiful, it's a family, and you're going to be like, yes, it is. I've seen it, I've lived it, I've loved it. And some of you are going to hear the church is a family, and you're going to just ache inside. Because it, it feels like part of the family has been, has been ripped apart in your own life and in your own experience. It's easier for me to talk about that church over there, out of state, that no longer exists anymore, but we can all be real that there, are, there have been challenges here in this local church too. But we're going today to dive in to the story of the local church, the purpose of the local church, and the beauty of the local church, despite the risk of the local church. Maybe you've never been told that before. But engaging in a local church is risky. Engaging in deep relationship is risky. I think the more we think about it, the more we know that to be true. Loving anyone is risky. Getting married is risky. Falling in love is risky. Having a child, whew, risky. They love you when they're little. Then they grow attitudes. Sometimes they grow out of the attitude. Sometimes they don't. Loving another person is risky. Loving the church is risky. Engaging in deep relationship is risky. So the question is, what is God's purpose here? What is God trying to do through us and through the local church? It's a really short and simple <clears throat> passage for this morning. Only three verses from 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. I'll stop there, and I'll, I'll catch us up with who we're talking about here. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy. Paul has identified Timothy earlier in the letter as his beloved son. There's deep affection between these two men. One middle age, one Early, early adulthood. Um, one has lived a life of following Christ and faced a number of challenges in ministry already. And one is just starting along the path of leadership. And Paul has sent Timothy there to a church that is important in the, in the um, early church, in the, in the early ancient world there. Timothy is stationed in Ephesus as somewhat of a pastor, but maybe even more than, than serving as a pastor, Timothy is there what seems like to be on a temporary assignment. Not just to pastor the church long term, but to build the church over the short term and set up this young church for long term success. Ephesus was a challenging city. You could make the case that Ephesus is one of the greatest problem children of the, of the early church uh, history period. Because Ephesus receives multiple letters. You know, Corinth, they got two letters. Romans got one long letter. 
Ephesus got its own letter, but then when you count First and Second Timothy, we're both written to the leader of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus got a lot of biblical scripture written to them. They had a lot of issues and a lot of challenges. Ephesus comes up in the book of Revelation, too, as one of Jesus' letters to the seven churches. Ephesus is one of those. Ephesus is a place of pagan idolatry and twisted worship. There's a temple there to the god Artemis, false god, in which there was um, worship was done through prostitution. There were temple prostitutes that people would come and pay homage to this female god Artemis through the purchase and the, the use of prostitutes in that place. It was a wicked, wicked um, cultural setting. And Timothy was sent probably in his 20s to be the representative of gospel truth to this young church in Ephesus that was trying to figure out how to live in those circumstances. Paul is saying, verse 14, I wish I could say this in person. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things so that... Now, as I told you, we're about halfway through this letter now. We've spent a number of sermons in um, the fall on the first three chapters of 1 Timothy. We've got some more coming on, on chapters 4, 5, and 6. But here is the point that Paul is going to tell Timothy, this is why I'm writing the letter. Anytime you're reading something and somebody tells you, this is why this document exists, it's like, okay, I should pay attention to that particular sentence. I'm writing to you, or I'm hoping to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So this is the word that the Lord has for us this morning, these three simple verses in which Paul gives us the basic message of the whole book of 1 Timothy. This is why, Timothy, I took the time to write you this letter, and this is how it's going to benefit your church in Ephesus. We're going to ask three questions. Three questions primarily of verse 15. Three, uh, four, four questions, sorry. Three questions in verse 15, one question in verse 16. You can write down these simple questions if you want to. What is the church? How are we to behave in the church? Paul says that's a key point of why he's writing this letter, so that you may know how one is to behave in the church. Uh, what is the church for? Not just what is the church's nature, but what is the church's function? And what is this mystery of godliness that Paul speaks of in verse 16? So in verse 15, we'll see the answer to those first three questions, and we'll see the answer to the last in verse 16. What is the church? What is it like? What is the ideal? You see that Paul says, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So the question we have to ask is, what is the word household communicating to us? Household, I will tell you, the Greek word is a little bit ambiguous in that the word household could mean a physical structure, okay? But, and Paul actually speaks of the church as the building of Christ, which Jesus, in the New Testament, 
Peter uses Jesus as the cornerstone for that building of Christ. But that's not the language that's used to talk about the church as a building of the body of Christ. This is a different word that earlier in the passage clearly is talking about family. I'll, I'll prove it to you. You can go back a little bit in 1 Timothy um, 3, and you can see, if you remember, what we talked about in November about 1 Timothy 3 is that we have two sets of qualifications here for two groups of people. One are the elders, overseers, or pastors of the church, the spiritual leaders of the church in the first portion. Then you have the deacons of the church defined and qualifications explicitly stated. In verse 4, you see that an overseer must manage his own household well. It's not talking about a physical structure. The The next phrase of that same sentence, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Okay, so in verse 4, a household is a family. It includes children. And then, in verse 12 of the same chapter, 1 Timothy 3, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. Again, household means family. We're not talking about a physical structure Just so you know, if you look at the way we define elders and deacons in this church, the deacons are really good at managing physical structures. I'm not sure all of our elders are. You know that we, our deacons, they they take care of the church building, they take care of physical structures, they take care of serving widows. I'll be honest, I'm not great at managing the own physical structure of my own home. That's not the requirement in this list here. It's not saying you can manage a building well. It's managing a family well. And so the word household, it means family in verse 4. It means family in verse 12. It means family here in verse 15. The church is a family. Now, ask yourself, this is good lunch conversation for you and whoever you're, you're here with, your family or somebody else after the church. Is that a good thing for you? I said in the introduction, I said, I think some people are going to receive that church's family thing and with open arms and be excited of it. And some are going to be like, that hurts me because the church has failed me or failed those I love and it feels hard. But the picture here of the church as family is an important one in Scripture because we have to see the depth of the connections that we have. The depth of the connection to other people that are members of the body of Christ, of members of the household, the family of God, is far deeper than we typically realize. And it works like this. If you have a sibling that was raised in the same home as you, that that you love dearly, that you have walked with for your whole life, be it 30 years, 50 years, 70 years, and that sibling is not a part of the family of faith, the family of God, then you have a deeper, longer-lasting connection to the other believers in this room and even around the world than you do even to your own sibling. Something about that feels a little weird, feels a little uncomfortable. I'm committed to that sibling. I'm committed to that brother. I'm committed to that child. I'm not saying... You need to give up on those connections. No, pray for the unbelievers in your family. Love them well and and seek to maintain those relationships so they may turn and enter into the family of God. I think I've told this story before that if I were to live in such a way 
If I were to meet somebody, let's say, lives in the same community, has a family just like mine, 10-year-old daughter, 8-year-old son, a 6-year-old daughter, they go to the same school, he likes the same things, he's interested in the same, um, same he likes the same restaurants, has the same hobbies, he watches the same sports teams, whatever those interests are, that person with whom I could have a lot of physical things in common, and yet that person is not a child of God and not a member of the household of faith, I actually have less in common with that person than I do with one of our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso, who lives a life that is nothing like mine, but whose eternal conviction and commitment are the same as mine. This is the challenge that we have to have in our minds of seeing exactly how deep the family connections of the household of God really are. Sometimes, and I think I have to say this, sometimes those, the depth of the family commitment has been used against people. Sometimes churches have misused language like that to say you can't question the leaders, you can't question what happens here, because we're a family, so you need to submit to the family leadership. You just need to get in line. And unfortunately, we live in a reality where people have been really and truly hurt by the church. And they've been hurt by the church with this sort of family language that says you can't leave this family. That says you can't just, just go to another family and choose another church because you're supposed to be here. We're a family. Don't you want to live in this family? But when mistakes are made, that causes deep harm. Even the leadership has to recognize that. Take accountability for mistakes that are made and love the family well. I think we all know that families are messy. I think we can all say that seeing the church as a messy family makes sense within our own experiences of family. Maybe y'all are different. My family's messy. There are some relationships that are easy in my family. There are some relationships that are hard in my family. There are some relationships that are hard in my family that might be live-streaming what I say, so I'm going to be careful about what I say. That was a joke. But the reality of it is, every one of us within our immediate family, and especially extended family, has those people that make Christmas and Thanksgiving a little bit more stressful. And every church has those relationships that are maybe not the people you want to sit in the aisle with, that make worship maybe a little bit more stressful as you walk into a building of diverse people who have all different personalities, who may have different convictions on, on secondary matters, but share the same convictions on what matters most. And so the church is a family, and the church is a messy family made up of messy people who are still sinners who hurt each other. And brothers and sisters, that's the sort of family I'm asking you to commit to. I'm asking you, not because we're so great, not because the people are so great, but because God is great, and because God wrote this book, and because God has called us together as a family. Do not give up on the beauty that can be seen, that can be found in deep relationships within the local church. Because if you've ever lived it, if you've ever seen it, 
you know how beautiful it can be. But unfortunately, some of us have lived it and lost it and wonder if we're ready to commit to that again. And I'm going to tell you, regardless of where your emotions are and your feeling of church and your desire, your energy to engage in deeper relationships with the church, I'm asking you to do it for the sake of Christ. Because it's his idea. It's, it's his definition of what his body looks like. It's not mine and it's not Paul's. So the church is a family. It's a messy family. And it's a family that God wants us to commit to despite the mess. But he goes on to say, that's the answer to what is the church. The church is a family. It's an essential family. It's a family that gathers. The New Testament says, do not forsake the gathering uh, together of the local body, the church. We should gather in person. We should be living in relationship with one another. The next question, how are we to behave in the church? Paul clearly says in verse 15 there that one of the reasons for writing the book, or one of the reasons for writing the letter, probably the primary reason for writing the letter in this sentence, is you know how to behave. What is he talking about? What, what instruction has Paul given Timothy in this letter on how people are to behave in the local church, in the family of God, the household of God? Well, the primary instruction that he's given up to this point is found, the primary instruction on behavior is found in the passages directly in front of it, where Paul defines what leaders look like. And Paul doesn't give a short definition of what character attributes leaders should have. He rather gives a pretty exhaustive. Here in this passage, he says elders are to be above reproach, meaning they cannot be easily questioned for character lapses. doesn't mean they're sinless, but it means that people around them see that is a man of character. That is a person that, that is revealing godly character. Elders are also to be husbands of one wife. Sexual, marital, relational faithfulness on display. It's character. Temperate or sober-minded. Not emotional and easy to get dragged into, into other doctrines or, or, um, or always looking for new things, new ideas, and chasing the rabbits down the trail of other false doctrines or other things other than the cause of Christ. Sober-minded, calm, controlled, steady-minded. That's how we're to behave in the local church. Self-controlled, or for the Christian, self-control, really, in Paul's other writings, it's very clear, Self-control means spirit control, means the spirit of God enables us to control our flesh and control our sin. That's how we're to behave in the household of God. Respectable, hospitable. In Titus, he says it like this, lovers of good, upright, holy, disciplined. Earlier in this passage, in 1 Timothy 3, he says that God's leaders should not be drunkards, should be some, some other substance that influences their behavior. They should not be violent but gentle? How are we to behave in the church of God? How are we to behave in the family of God? We are not to be violent. We're especially not to be violent with each other. We're called to be gentle in our reactions, in our treatment of each other. We're called to love one another, respond in the behavior that Paul is defining for us here. Not quarrelsome. It doesn't mean that we don't stand up for the truth. We're going to get there in just a second. But quarrelsome really means that just picking a fight, not a lover of money, not arrogant. These are the instructions on our behavior in the church. And so I'm going to tell you, 
if you have been hurt by people in the church, have those people that have hurt you really lived out the behavior that the church is called to? Because our problem with experiencing church hurt, as they call it now, our problem in those experiences is not the design of the church is broken. The design of the church is beautiful. And how God defines the behaviors of the church to look, it's beautiful. But it is that people are broken, people sin, and people fall short of God's expectation of them. Galatians 6.10 tells us about how we are to behave in the church. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Jesus gives us a new command, the followers of him, a new command, I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how we're to behave. The church of Jesus should be known for the love that we have for each other and the love that we have for the world. Um, many of us probably saw the tragedy of um, last Monday night in the Monday night football game, a young man who went into cardiac arrest in the middle of a football game, one of the biggest games of the year. We, we watched it live. It's interesting, I put something on Facebook, just a short little thought that generated a lot of attention from people. And then as I looked at the coverage over the ensuing days, there was something about that public crisis where one person with all eyes on him was suffering in a field of play, a young person full of health, and he was experiencing, he was, received CPR, they brought out AEDs, they brought him back, put him, in a, put him in an ambulance, had to be resuscitated again when he got to the hospital. Days later, he, he is awake, signs are encouraging, but he's still in critical condition. But that story, that's been one of the biggest news stories all week long. One guy, one single person with all eyes on him in one of the biggest football games of the year. Nobody knew who DeMar Hamlin was, and now lots of people know who DeMar Hamlin is. But one of the things that's happened is the way we view prayer within public society has been on display all throughout this. Because you have people that early on are talking about, yeah, our thoughts and prayers are with this, this young injured guy. And then, as it was serious, as it recognized that this was not just a head injury, this was a, this was a life and death scenario, and they were struggling to get him resuscitated, and they were struggling to get him into the ambulance, all of a sudden, there was actually talk of real prayer. Not thoughts and prayers, the simple version, but real prayer. The next day, there was a former NFL player who's an, who works for ESPN that was praying on ESPN, that stopped the broadcast to pray. A couple days later, Benjamin Watson, a, a believer who's a former NFL player, was on CNN sharing that we all have to struggle with our eternity, but Jesus Christ provides the answer for us. And he said it right there on ESPN for anyone to hear. We have clear witnesses on ESPN, on CNN, on, on news broadcasts all throughout the country of what the church can do when we love one another, when we love people, and when we emphasize care and concern for those that are hurt and for those that need prayer. 
the church is still God's chosen instrument for reaching the world. The public view of the church has probably never been lower since the earliest days of the church. Probably ever since Rome converted to Christianity in mass, never has the public view of the church been lower than in our generation. Because we have an atheistic, a secular culture that is against the church. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, we can still make a difference. And we can still love Jesus well and with a strong commitment to the truth. It is what the church is for. But we have to first figure out how we are to behave within the church in order to represent Christ to those outside of the church. The third question is that question. What is the church for? And this is what he says in verse 15. The church is the church of the living of God, a pillar and buttress of truth. I've got a couple pictures for you that will we'll show up. Go ahead and we'll look at the first picture here. This is the temple of Artemis. Doesn't look like much. A couple thousand years later. But this is the temple that was standing as Paul was writing this letter to Timothy. This is what pillars looked like in Ephesus. They looked a little bit better than that. Let's look at the next picture. This is an artist's rendering of what the temple would have looked like as Paul was writing this letter to Timothy. Pillars, big ones, big buildings. Archaeologists say that there's a hundred pillars that are a part of the structure of that building. That the pillars are 18 meters high. The roof is a shining marble roof. That, that could, and the pillars are made of marble. You can see it shining from miles and miles away. It's built up on this platform so that people can see it as they're entering into Ephesus. At any point in Ephesus, you can see that majestic, beautiful structure. And Paul is telling Timothy, you know that big building? That's the most impressive building in Ephesus? One of the ancient wonders of the world, by the way. You see those pillars? I want you to think of those pillars as we think about the truth. The church is the pillar of the truth. Buttress. Next picture. A buttress is something that stands outside. Those things that come out of the building there, those are flying buttresses. If you ever knew anything about architecture, you've learned that at some point. But those are buttresses that sit outside of the structure of, church, of the building to hold up the building. It's an exterior function that gives support to the building itself. Now back to verse 15. What do we mean by pillars and buttresses? First, the church is to hold firm to the foundation of truth. In fact, there's actually a little bit, we have to be careful what we say about this verse. The church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let me ask you a question. What is buttressing what? Is the church buttressing the truth, or is the truth buttressing the church? Is the truth the foundation of the church, or is the church the foundation of the truth? The language in this passage is actually saying that the church is holding up the truth. Not necessarily that the truth is the important and essential foundation of the church. That, that's, that's said elsewhere in Scripture. That's important. The church needs to be built on the foundation of Christ and of the truth. But in this passage, 
What Paul is saying is the, is the truth stands because of the church. It's not just that the church needs the truth. It's that truth needs the church. So the function of truth surviving in a society is that the church has to hold it up. The church has to lift up the truth like those mighty, iconic pillars of the Temple of Artemis. They hold up the truth. There's two different functions of a pillar and a buttress. The buttress supports it so it doesn't fall down. The pillar holds it up like that big, shining marble roof. And the church is called to do both to the truth. Number one, we protect the truth. The truth of who God is, of what he has done, of who we are as sinners who deserve condemnation for our actions, the truth of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf, those are things that we must support and hold on to and protect. First and Second Timothy is in large part books that are written for the purpose of Timothy protecting the message of the truth. That's our function. We're here to guard the truth. That's what our buttress does. It supports the truth, the foundation. We're also here to lift up the truth. That's what a pillar does. A pillar builds on the foundation and it presents it to where people can see it from miles and miles away. So the church is a support structure in which the truth is protected and supported. The church it also projects the, church, the truth out into the watching world. How will the, tr- the culture know the truth? Because the church has protected it and presented it. The church has protected it and projected it. So that the church actually knows the truth of who God is, of what Christ has done. And we lift up the truth of who Jesus is. The message that all humanity needs to hear and respond to. We lift it up so that people can hear and respond. That's the function of the church. There's a mission in that passage. There's architectural analogy, sure. There's also a missional statement in architectural analogy. Two functions of the church. Hold up and support the truth and lift up the truth so that others can see it from far away. That's the picture that Paul's giving us here. And our last question, what is the mystery of godliness that he speaks of? Verse 16 is kind of a hymn, an ancient Christian hymn that's um, three different couplets. You have two things that are that are you have three things that are said two different ways. The first couplet speaks of the revelation of Christ, how Christ was seen. He was first manifested in the flesh, and second, vindicated by the Spirit. The first couplet is saying that Christ is revealed in powerful ways. In his incarnation, he appeared in a body. In his resurrection, he reappeared in that body through the vindication of the Spirit who raised the Son back to life. And in each of these three couplets that I'm going to tell you about here, there's this flesh and spirit. Couplet number two, the witnesses of Christ. He was seen by angels and preached among the nations. There's a human element to it. The nations preached Christ. There's also a heavenly element to it. The angels saw and preached Christ. The third couplet, human aspect, and a eternal, celestial, spirit-filled aspect. The reception of Christ. He was believed on in the world, and he was taken up into glory in heaven. 
whether Paul wrote this hymn or Paul had heard this hymn from others, it's a hymn of worship that worships the significance of the mystery of godliness. That God could be both God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit all at once. That Jesus could be appearing in the flesh as a body and yet taken up into glory as the Father, as the, as the Son of God, as the eternal King. Jesus' life is a juxtaposition of eternal and temporal, of the heavenly kingdom and the earthly creation. They come together in the life of Jesus. That's what this hymn is all about, that he is revealed in a body and vindicated by the Spirit, that he is seen by angels in the heavenly realm and also proclaimed among the nations by human beings just like you and me. He was believed on in the physical world and he was taken up into glory where he's continuing to be worshipped by angels day after day, minute after minute. What Paul is saying to us here is that what we must primarily guard, the truth we must primarily confess and protect is the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. The truth that says that we as sinners have rebelled against God, have fallen short of God's glory, and stored up for ourselves wrath from God by our own actions. That Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, was raised again to newness of life to show that God had achieved victory over all darkness and all enemies. We know through experience that we live in a land, in a world, in a society full of great darkness. We know that we continue to wrestle with darkness. We continue to fight sin. And if you don't hate sin, you ain't been paying attention. If you haven't been hurt by sin in your own life and the sins of others, then you haven't been paying attention to the effect that sin has all around us. But the answer for sinfulness in people is not to escape, is not to just live a life on your own away from people. The answer for the heinous nature of sin is to actually step back into the risk of relationship and to join in with a local community of believers that love Christ, that hold up the truth of Christ, that guard the truth of Christ against all uh, rival notions from other ideologies, and actually live in courageous relationship with each other. So I'm going to ask you as the band comes up, what will you do in response to the word of God this morning? Some of us need God's help. We need God's help in seeking to go back to deeper relationships in the church because we've been hurt before. We need God's help to actually think and believe that the church could be a beautiful place, a loving community again. Some of us know exactly what to do. We are to love one another in a deeper way. That's the starting point for relationships in a church. Just pick somebody and to love them. Love them well. Serve them. But there's also a mission here. The basis of our mission is what God has done for us and what God has done in us. He has called us to himself. He has called us his family. And he has said to us, the family and the children of God, love one another, even when it's hard. And he's also called us for a mission outside. The mission inside, love one another. Simple, hard. The mission outside, kind of simple and hard. 
Defend the truth, protect the truth, and display the truth. Like those mighty pillars of the temple of Artemis portrayed physical beauty built on false reality. Physical beauty dedicated to a false God that ruined people's lives, that ruined eternal souls. We as a church can be a pillar of the real truth, of the one who saves souls, who redeems people. So I want you to ask the Lord this morning, what is it that he's calling you to do in response? And I'm going to ask you to worship with us as we recognize that any response to this passage cannot be achieved or accomplished on our own strength. However God is calling us to respond, he's fueling us to respond. So I'm going to invite you to respond to the message how God is showing you to respond. Some may come to the altar, and some may come to the altar because they need to respond to the gospel, receive repentance. And I'll be here if you want to come forward and receive repentance and new life in Christ. Some are going to want to stand and worship and sing. Some are going to want to kneel some are going to want to respond in other ways that God might lead you to. But as they sing, respond how the Spirit leads. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hope, my hope is only Sure, 
the price it has been paid for jesus bled and suffered for my pardon and he was raised to overthrow the grave to this i hold my sin has been defeated jesus standing and receive the blessing that can only come to the redeemed from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.